Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. I enthusiastically read Kush Barshni's book when it was released for free to the world several months back. Trustworthy machine learning is a concise and clear overview of many of the ways that machine learning can go wrong. And so I was especially keen to get Kush on to talk more about his work and research. I also got a stronger sense and appreciation for how good MLOps practices and workflows offered a clear path to ensuring that your machine learning models and behaviors could become more trustworthy. Kush has done a lot of interesting work, particularly with the AI Fairness 360 and AI Explainability 360 toolkits that I'm sure listeners of this podcast would find worth checking out. But without any further ado, let's get into the conversation. Thanks, Alex, for having me on the podcast. Uh, yeah, my name is Kush Varshni. I'm a distinguished research staff member and manager at IBM Research, uh, working at our uh, TJ Watson Research Center, uh, which is in Yorktown Heights, New York. And uh, I focus on what we call trustworthy AI. Um, so that's the idea that um, uh, a lot of the uh, models that we want to put into production from uh, machine learning and, and so forth, when they're used in high-risk applications, um, we actually care about a lot more things than just their accuracy. So um, uh, we want to care about things like uh, fairness, robustness, explainability, uh, transparency, and so forth. And um, uh, the way I got to this point is... Um, uh, when I first started uh, working at IBM Research after I'd uh, completed my uh, PhD, um, uh, was uh, that we did a lot of applied projects with various uh, sort of um, uh, sort of organizations who were um, using uh, machine learning in new ways at that time, so back uh, like 12 years ago. So um, many of them were related to some sort of people processes. Um, uh, so HR uh, sort of problems, uh, healthcare problems, etc. And um, uh, by working on those problems, and then um, I also uh, uh, co-founded the IBM Science for Social Good initiative, in which we uh, started doing a lot of applied projects with various uh, nonprofit organizations and social enterprises. When I first started working at IBM Research, uh, after finishing my PhD at uh, IBM, uh, we um, were actually working on a lot of applied projects uh, with various organizations. Uh, so that included um, organizations uh, looking at uh, HR applications, so um, promotions, uh, retention, hiring, things like that, as well as uh, many healthcare sort of applications. And um, uh, by working on those projects, as well as uh, some projects that we did um, through a, a program that I co-founded called the uh, IBM Science for Social Good Initiative, where we um, uh, work with various uh, nonprofit and uh, kind of social enterprise partners, we kind of learned about um, what are all those um, considerations that you have to actually have um, uh, while putting these uh, models into production in those high-risk sort of settings. So um, that's kind of how we got to, to the point that we did and then started focusing our research on uh, on some of those topics as well. And what was it that kind of specifically attracted you? I mean, a lot of people work on applied projects in healthcare mm -hmm. or whatever, but not all of them end up writing books about you know trustworthiness and mm -hmm. machine learning. Like what was interesting mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I've always had an interest in the, the broader impacts of the work. Um, so back in school, I mean, uh, I did, I mean, major in engineering and so forth, but um, 
I always kind of in high school and even throughout college um, was always interested in uh, kind of other topics in the social sciences and so forth. So I think uh, that uh, has played a role. Um, also, I think uh, uh, being in a, a research environment at IBM Research where we have a dual sort of mission, both to um, uh, satisfy the, the client needs, but also then think about where we can take that further um, uh, is was a big contribution as well, because um, uh, it's not just about doing, it's not just about researching, but kind of basing the research on what we have done. So I, I think all of that combines to uh, uh, to take me in that. So maybe it's worth just getting into the book a little bit. I have yeah somewhere in between skimmed and read it. Some parts of it went a little bit over my head, a little bit too technical. Other parts definitely would, even if you're non-technical, I feel like it's very clearly written and clearly presented so thank you for it's clear you took a lot of time to make sure that it was consumable in that way i guess but yeah maybe you could just talk about the the thesis of the book talk a little bit about what exactly you mean by trustworthy unpack that a bit yeah sure um yeah so the book is entitled uh, trustworthy machine learning and i'm self-publishing it so it's available for free um uh, as an electronic copy at uh, trustworthymachinelearning.com and an at-cost uh, uh, paperback uh, via Amazon in uh, their international markets and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so the book is about, uh, like I was talking about earlier, kind of what are the considerations that we need for uh, people to be able to uh, to trust these uh, AI systems as they are uh, being used in, in uh, various sort of high-risk applications so the way that I kind of um, thread everything through the entire book um, uh, is first by defining what I mean by trustworthiness. And the um, uh, the starting point is uh, some of the literature from organizational management. And in that space, they've identified four uh, main attributes that another person needs to have to be trustworthy. And I kind of... Um, uh, start the discussion in that way. So those four attributes are um, uh, that the other person should be uh, competent at what they're doing, so they can do what they say. Um, second is that they should be reliable, so that that uh, competence sticks around in different conditions, different settings, and so forth. Uh, third attribute is some level of openness or intimacy with the other person, so that um, you can really communicate back and forth with them. And the uh, the last is some kind of selflessness so that uh, the other person is working not just for their own goals, but for some broader mission. Uh, so the way the book kind of proceeds is by um, kind of mapping all of those uh, attributes to um, actual characteristics of machine learning systems and then talking about those um, in some detail. So uh, the first, the competence is the basic accuracy. So um, how do we make systems that uh, that perform well? Um, and then the reliability maps to a few different things. Um, so there's uh, distributional robustness. So we don't want machine learning models that uh, uh, fail when there's data drift and so forth. Um, there is uh, algorithmic fairness. So uh, when we are applying these models, we don't want them to perform uh, very differently across groups uh, So uh, uh, and individuals so that we want them to be uh, performing well across uh, across all people. And thirdly, uh, it's uh, adversarial robustness. So um, we want these systems to be able to um, uh, withstand uh, any sort of malicious attacks that are usually um, some sort of uh, uh, causing of a distribution change or something like that. Uh, so we want that reliability as well. 
Um, so that was the second attribute. Uh, third attribute is uh, the openness. And so uh, there's the direction from uh, the human to the machine. Um, so that's what we would call uh, value alignment. Um, so value alignment being the uh, idea that uh, uh, how can we as people instruct the machines to uh, uh, behave in the ways that we want. And then there's uh, the direction from the machine to the human. So that includes uh, explainability and interpretability of models. Um, so that's uh, how can people understand how the uh, machines make their decisions. And then there's also um, a broader set of things uh, uh, that go beyond just uh, the model interpretability. So uh, that includes uh, how do we test these models? How do we report those test results in a transparent manner? How do we uh, compute uncertainties associated with those test results and so forth? So all that is the third attribute. And then the last attribute is um, uh, how do we use AI for social good? Um, how do we um, include the values and perspectives of uh, uh, people who have experienced marginalization in some capacity and actually um, uh, make these systems so that they uh, are empowering of, uh, of all people, including those who have experienced some sort of oppression before. Um, so, so that's kind of the, uh, the overall sort of uh, framing of the book and how I kind of uh, uh, tried to, uh, to go through things. What level were you trying to address by writing this book? Was your goal to affect like kind of practical change, just reframing the way people think about these things, offer people a framework, all of the above? Yeah, um, so I mainly wanted to appeal to um, people who are in the trenches, um, so project managers and data scientists and data engineers who actually are working on uh, on problems that, uh, that have some consequence to them. Um, but I didn't want to make it uh, like too superficial in the sense that... Uh, I mean, everyone would agree, yes, I mean, these are important topics. I don't think that that's necessarily something that we need to convince, but um, uh, what we need more of is kind of the conceptual understanding of what these really are and kind of um, uh, how they're interrelated, uh, how to work towards them. Um, and uh, the other thing I didn't want to do in the book is um, uh, just make it be kind of like a recipe book that um, these are the steps to follow um, and do this, do this, do this, and then you'll get what you need. Um, because uh, to me, uh, I mean, another sort of thing that I say throughout the book is not to take shortcuts. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, it's very easy to kind of not think um, about what you're doing as a developer and kind of just... Uh, a follow-up prescribed pattern, and I don't think that's the right thing to do um, in this space of trustworthy AI. So um, what I want people to understand is what are the concepts, um, uh, have enough details so that it's not just like wishy-washy, but um, I mean, grounded in uh, sort of reality, but then, um, uh, I mean, there's other resources for um, like a really deep technical dive onto things, uh, code examples, things like that, um, or elsewhere. But um, like kind of having the vision for people of what to think about, how to think, um, uh, so that when they are in actually developing their systems, whether it's in uh, any industry, banking or healthcare or um, uh, retail or I mean any sort of uh, place that you are uh, developing machine learning models for that uh, you kind of have this uh, way to, to way to think. Yeah, I think that the kind of the ways all of these different concepts and ideas interrelate to each other was one of the big things that I took away from. I've got my kind of heavily annotated now copy. Yeah, because I think quite often you hear these words in disconnected ways, and, and sometimes yeah. people don't use them in a very 
clearly or well-defined way. So mm-hmm. the, there's often a tendency to blur uh, yeah, in between. Exactly, exactly. So when we talk to a lot of customers and clients, um, they might use the word uh, explainability when they really mean fairness and vice versa and, and so forth. So um, getting the concepts across, I think, was important for me um, because uh, there are reasons why, I mean, different things are more or less important in a particular application. So um, having that clarity, I think, is uh, is a good thing. It feels like also that, I guess, of these four main areas that you explore, it feels like most of the effort, at least so far, uh, and maybe this is my my uh, misunderstanding of the space, but most of the effort has gone towards the competence part of things at the mm-hmm. detriment of the the other three. Firstly, I guess, is that a correct assessment? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Is that just because yeah. it's easier somehow or like... Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's how you have to start, right? So um, uh, that is definitely the, 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 the right sort of understanding. And one analogy I like to make is um, to aviation. So um, uh, we can say that uh, the... Uh, whatever, the first flight by the Wright brothers was in 1903. And um, the first 50 years or so were just about figuring out how to get planes to fly. And then um, uh, in 1958, that was when the Boeing 707 was introduced. And um, since then, um, planes haven't, I mean, changed radically. I mean, they kind of are the same as uh, as they were in, in uh, 1958. So um, in the second 50 years uh, that have uh, transpired since then, the big change has been... Um, around the safety and automation of, uh, of, uh, of aircraft, right? So um, since the 1970s, for example, the um, uh, fatality rate is like 300 times lower per mile flown. And there's, I mean, so many more um, uh, planes flying and everything. So um, the safety, the trustworthiness is has to come after you kind of um, uh, figure out the, uh, the basics of, uh, of how to get these things to fly, right? So... We're kind of now at the beginning of the second 50 years of, uh, of AI in some sense. So um, uh, again, if we go back to uh, like 1956, um, the Dartmouth Conference, which um, kind of launched uh, the field of AI as, a, as an area of study. And then we can say maybe um, around uh, 2012 or so uh, was the first 50 years when uh, uh, ImageNet uh, was uh, uh, sort of beaten by, uh, by deep learning and so forth. So now we're right at the start of that second 50 years where now the focus is on all these other considerations. Where do the incentives or motivations for that switch to to come? I mean, I can see in certain areas, I guess maybe the uh, you were talking about high-risk areas earlier on. I can see mm-hmm. maybe there's, there's a little bit more of an incentive, but for a kind of a wide-scale change, does that exist even? Yeah, I think things are starting to happen. Um, so especially uh, with regulations. Uh, so in Europe, uh, there's the uh, draft regulation for high-risk AI that uh, should be in effect pretty soon. And um, that's going to um, uh, kind of insist on various sort of fairness and explainability and robustness things uh, for any uh, for, for a lot of AI systems. Uh, and around the world, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of new regulations coming out uh, in different sort of industries. But um, uh, also, I think there's um, a few other reasons. Uh, so a lot of companies are now um, thinking about their brand reputation. If uh, there are um, factors that, uh, that lead their, uh, their systems to uh, behave poorly or in um, bad ways, uh, in harmful ways, then uh, they don't want that to happen. Um, 
Uh, there's a lot more complexity these days as well. So um, there are organizations that have uh, thousands of models running and um, just making sure that they're well-governed, well-tested, um, and so forth is an important aspect. And then uh, in the last couple of years, in many uh, parts of the world, there has been a, a renewed focus on social justice as well. So I think that's uh, playing a role. So everything is kind of coming together. People now are actually interacting with these systems in their daily lives. So um, I think uh, it is time now to uh, to focus on uh, all of the considerations beyond accuracy, just as much as we do on accuracy. Do you foresee, I guess, a little bit like your aviation example, do you foresee some of this complexity eventually being concealed away, maybe to the point where we, it's not, it's, yeah, it's just being dealt with automatically? Or are, are there some parts of this, this stuff that just is complicated mm-hmm. and will remain so for a long, a long time? Yeah, um, so let me continue my analogy a little bit. Um, so... Uh, as much as I know about airplanes, uh, there's kind of three parts of a flight. There's takeoff, there's cruising, and there's landing. Um, so the cruising part uh, has become very automated. So um, the pilots, I mean, put things on, on autopilot and so forth. Um, there's much more manual um, sort of parts of the takeoff and the landing. Um, and if we t- uh, think about the entire sort of um, AI development lifecycle um there are kind of different phases, right? So there's the problem specification, there's uh, data understanding, data preparation, modeling, uh, evaluation, then uh, monitor, monitoring and deployment. And so we can kind of think of a few of those parts as a takeoff part. So um, things like uh, specifying the problem, uh, also understanding the data. So I think those have to be uh, kind of kept uh, manual in, in many respects. Mm-hmm. But then the middle part, which is the data preparation, feature engineering, and modeling, a lot of that already is becoming automated. So there's a lot of auto ML um, sort of things happening. Yeah. Uh, so I think that will continue and it can bring in a lot of the fairness and explainability and robustness and other things because um, uh, those are additional constraints, additional objective functions for the auto ML to also worry about. Um, so that is happening. I don't imagine that uh, it will be I mean, even more than a couple of years before all of these things are incorporated into AutoML sort of systems. And then um, the landing is kind of the evaluation, the monitoring um, in some respect, but evaluation mostly, which um, uh, does also need a human touch to kind of identify what are the possible harms that the system might be um, uh, enabling and so forth. Um, And especially bringing in people who have lived experience of uh, of marginalization to better be able to recognize what those harms are um, in that evaluation phase. And then um, in the deployment monitoring sort of thing, uh, I think also um, there's a lot of possibility for automation because, um, uh, again, uh, I mean, there's if you have well-defined sort of metrics and things, you can kind of monitor things in in that appropriate fashion. So uh, I think... There's certain parts where there will need to be um, more of a human uh, aspect to it, but there's certain parts that can certainly um, benefit from more automation as well. It seems at the moment there are a lot of people coming into the field of machine learning, quite a few of them coming from, you know, very distant disciplines, which in some ways is a good thing, I, I, I would argue. Possibly, though, I wonder whether a lot of untrained people doing things with a tool which isn't really 
built towards best practices and a lot of the things that you write about in your book it feels like um almost like everything is kind of a high risk domain in 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 that Mm -hmm. sense right would would you agree or yeah i i definitely agree with um, the sentiment that you have and it's more of a call for us to develop better tools i think so um uh, if we are going to be democratizing um, a lot of the AI sort of stuff, going more towards these low-code, no-code sort of environments and so forth, um, uh, we can't do them kind of blindly. I think it's an onus on um, uh, folks like me or um, other people developing tools uh, for uh, citizen data scientists to actually um, uh, put in guardrails, um, mechanisms for governing uh, these systems such that um, uh, you actually aren't allowed to, um, or at least be warned very, uh, very seriously that um, uh, the system that you're creating actually um, is going against certain sort of uh, uh, levels of uh, of things that you that you want to control. So, um, I think the governance aspect of it is uh, is the key. Uh, while we're making things easier to use, we can't kind of uh, get away from the. Uh, uh, the responsibilities we kind of absolve ourselves of um, the, those guardrails and so forth. So it seems that at least at the the kind of the lower level, maybe bottom up, yeah, improving that tooling space is important. What would be some of the tools and kind of uh, bottom up standards and, and mm-hmm. processes, I guess, that you think are getting it right or going in the right direction mm-hmm. at the moment? Yeah, so my own group um, at IBM, uh, we've created several open source toolkits. Um, so AI Fairness 360, AI Explainability 360, um, uh, Adversarial Robustness, Uncertainty Quantification, um, AI Fact Sheets as well, and Privacy and uh, Causal Inference. And um, with all of those uh, right now, uh, they're just, uh, I mean, Python libraries, or um, in the case of Fairness, there's also an R uh, library. Um, and uh they don't have all of this other stuff that I was just talking about, right? Um, so one thing that, uh, at least on the IBM side, we're working with our uh, product group with uh, is actually to um, uh, institute more governance um, around uh, kind of the, the development lifecycle. So um, there's an IBM product called Watson Studio um, and our Cloud Pack for Data. And in that, we just um, kind of pushed for an AI governance aspect to it, which is based on our fact sheets uh, sort of ideas. And um, that actually um, starts the process of um, people actually being explicit about um, what do they care about, what metrics do they want to um, uh, put bounds on and so forth, and um, uh, does some automatic collection of uh, of what's going on and, and so forth. But I think there's a long way to go. Uh, I think even that is maybe too technical right now. Um, so, I mean, we need to kind of bring that down to uh, the uh, the level that uh, uh, more like a broader population can, can really uh, work with and, and do some things good with. Something I wondered about as I was reading your book, you know, obviously machine learning is somehow part of kind of a, a scientific process. People are doing experiments and, you know, we've all, heard and read about kind of reproducibility crisis in a whole bunch of different kind of scientific sub-disciplines. Where does reproducibility fit into what you're talking about and what you've been writing mm-hmm. about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're using a machine learning model to um, manage some business process, uh, whatever, hiring or um, loan approval or what have you, um, uh, I, I mean, 
there's it's a different sort of reproducibility than in scientific discovery, I would say, because um, uh, when you're conducting some science experiment to figure out some new sort of understanding of the world, um, uh, you want to make sure that that understanding has uh, external validity. It would hold up um, uh, in, in, I mean, in more generally than just the experiment that, that you ran and so forth and would have internal validity so that even in that limited sort of uh, scope that uh, it would be able to reproduce those results, right? So um, the same sort of, I mean, ideas apply for um, using machine learning in other tasks, but um, since... Uh, you don't necessarily, I mean, the internal validity, sure, I mean, exactly, you want the same sort of thing. The external validity is a little bit different, I would say, because um, uh, you're not trying to necessarily discover, like, the laws of gravity or um, whatever. Um, uh, you're just trying to apply these systems in your setting um, to make sure that in terms of the clients or the um, applicants that you receive that, uh, that the models are doing the right thing, right? Um, so... Uh, I mean, the transparency, the documentation, uh, uh, the fact sheets that I was talking about can certainly help um, uh, with a lot of those reproducibility sort of things. But I do think uh, we want to make sure that uh, we don't broaden the, the nature of the external validity beyond what we actually need for um, uh, for a lot of processes. So it's almost a downstream consequence of some of the rest of the things that you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, as long as we're kind of maintaining um, the the right provenance, uh, capturing the the documents uh, or the facts um, that we need for uh, for understanding what was done, um, then I mean, it's helping with the trust aspect, but it's yeah, I mean, just as much helping with the, the reproducibility. Where are the kinds of places? Um, maybe not even specific places, but what kinds of companies do you feel are doing getting things right in this respect is it very very large companies with a lot to lose potentially is it small companies who care a lot yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think it's a mix um so yeah i mean in certain geographies certain industries there's definitely um companies that are ahead of the game um especially those that have traditionally been regulated um so in the financial services and, and so forth um uh, but there's examples, both big and large, um, in all sorts of other industries uh, that are um, pushing on trustworthy AI, trustworthy machine learning um, uh, quite a bit. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily based on the size of the company. I think it's more on um, uh, the mission and um, whether the, uh, uh, I mean, the decision makers, the people in power in those companies actually um, uh, are devoting resources to focus on uh, the, the trustworthiness aspects. Uh, so I, I think that's more of the uh, the, the reasoning behind it. But uh, yeah, I mean, regulation, like I said, is also driving things. Mm-hmm. And we have all of these different roles in machine learning and mm-hmm. kind of just doing things with data in general. Mm-hmm. Definitely following along from, you know, don't take shortcuts, I guess, is mm-hmm. don't just create some like token role for someone who's meant to implement um, trustworthiness for for your machine mm-hmm. learning. If we take that to its kind of conclusion, does that mm-hmm. mean we need to? Does that imply a kind of a rethinking how kind of the process is currently being being implemented? Yeah, maybe. Um, so going back to uh, the previous point that you were making about automation, right? Um, if we imagine a few years into the future, um, 
presumably the uh, feature engineering modeling and the uh, monitoring and um, so forth are going to be automated. So we don't necessarily need people in those roles anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So the roles that we need people for are the initial parts and the evaluation part, like I was saying before. So the role itself of defining, translating what the business problem is into a technical problem, that's always been a a role that we need. I think it's just going to get heightened as the other roles get more automated out. So I think... What we need to make sure about is that the people who are setting up the problems that are figuring out what it is that we're actually doing are thinking about the the right things, that they they are thinking about robustness and fairness and explainability and so forth, because um, at some level, they can be in their own bubble and uh, not even care or think about what the big effects of their systems could be. So the more we can bring that thinking right at the beginning, I think it'll be helpful because, and even if we forget about automation, right, any skilled data science if they're given requirements, they will meet them. I mean, people are, uh, I mean, able to, to do that. There's no question about it. So it's about kind of setting those KPIs, setting up the requirements and so forth at the beginning. That's the place where we need to really focus, I think. Yeah, I'm wondering a little bit like what a platform built for fairness and, and, and social goods like mm-hmm. even looks like. There are so many kind of ML platforms, and mm-hmm. particularly now with this kind of booming explosion of tooling in in ML ops and so on, what you're envisioning does it resemble what we have right now? Does it require yeah. something different? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the ML ops way of doing things is the right way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, spending the time uh, and having the tooling to uh, uh, think through the different stages, um, having some continuity uh, across the stages um, that can get enabled. Um, I think that's right. I mean, having the monitoring observability sort of infrastructure, I think, is uh, is going to be the, the right ways to do it. So, no, I, I think um, uh, the MLOps uh, approach is the approach uh, that uh, just needs a little bit more um, sort of uh, dimensions. But uh, uh, I don't think the, the flow itself uh, needs any change. And I presume that there's other non-technical shifts which need to happen as well. I imagine particularly in kind of the the beginning of the the process, even education and people coming into into this space. How important do you see that relative to the technical changes? Right. Um, So I think you kind of mentioned it before. I mean, there's a large number of people coming into the space now that are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so... Um, if they are bringing their background along with them, it's actually a good thing, right? Um, so uh, there's people who have thought about it, um, who have personally experienced uh, things that are um, kind of uh, oppressive or harmful. There's people who um, are experts at uh, kind of the nuance of uh, what it means to uh, um, have systematic sort of uh, processes um, in place and so forth. So um, I think just having the the right, I mean, those folks involved in this problem specification um, is already moving us in the right direction. And um, and that's not to say that uh, engineers and data scientists shouldn't also be um, uh, kind of involved uh, very heavily because um, there's a lot of uh, kind of imagination back and forth, a lot of translation back and forth to um, uh, really figure out, I mean, what is 
XYZ concept um, from social science mean in a technical sense and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's we're headed in the right direction. I think we just need um, uh, some more time for this uh, second 50 years to, uh, to, to, to carry out. And then uh, I think we'll be, in, we'll be in good shape. Yeah, I'm definitely um, in the moments where I've been on the practitioner end of things. I definitely mm -hmm. feel even something like the idea of testing, which is a kind of a relatively more or less well-defined concept in software engineering, is very fuzzy in the ML world. And it's kind That's of, right. yeah, much harder to think about. Yeah, I mean, testing, uh, like you said, I mean, in uh, typical software engineering, I mean, you kind of know what the answer is supposed to be, right? Two plus two equals four, but... Um, in machine learning, I mean, the whole point is to generalize. Um, so you shouldn't, I mean, it's not possible to know exactly what the right answer is supposed to be, but um, there's clever folks um, figuring out uh, how to test these systems. So one concept is called um, metamorphic relations. And it's the idea that if you know that two inputs are supposed to have the same output, you don't know what that output is going to be. But um, as long as both inputs are supposed to have the same output, at least you can test that way. And um, there's all sorts of clever um, ways you can construct those pairs. Um, so in a speech to text example, I mean, you kind of uh, speed it up, slow it down a little bit. Um, you can change the uh, uh, noise characteristics and stuff. I mean, you should still get the same uh, uh, sort of classification in a more fairness sort of context. Um, if you have a tabular data set and you change a protected attribute, leave all the other features the same, but change, let's say, male to female or female to male or something, um, uh, then it, presumably it should um, get the same output. So um, there's, I mean, ways to, to do this, but uh, I agree with you. I mean, um, uh, kind of defining test coverage and um, uh, these sort of things is to be uh, to be figured out much more in the, in the machine learning. Your book is filled with a series of things that could make systems untrustworthy. It's almost like a catalog of the, the anti-pattern. But I get the sense that you're you maybe have a an optimistic take on things that is at least possible, perhaps in theory, to 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 solve them. Where do you fall on the kind of the scale of how realistic it is that will? Mm -hmm actually solve and fix some of the issues that you raise? Yeah, I'm very optimistic, um, <clears throat> maybe to a fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, anytime you describe um, things that could be harmful, I mean, you have to describe both the bad and the good. Um, otherwise, you're kind of glossing over the important points. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, you can misuse things, uh, and that's true of a lot of technologies. Um, uh, but discussing them out in the open, um, suggesting solutions and um, kind of going from there is my kind of uh, optimistic ethos on it, yeah. And uh, you also, you mentioned, we spoke a little bit about legislation earlier and how that might drive people to to change their behavior and implement things or, or it can drive the kind of the, the level of research or investment or whatever that gets put into this space. How, how important is that really? Because I guess people will point to something like GDPR and, and so on. And yes, on the one hand, it made people a lot more conscious about some of these things. But then again, maybe it just made us have to click cookie banners on every website. How much will that really drive drive change? Yeah, I think the legislation itself, um, because it's written in natural language, it doesn't tell you exactly like that you need this metric to be this um, in this range and so forth. So 
um, it's less actionable than um, things that follow from that regulation. So I don't know in GDPR if there has been too much um, beyond just GDPR itself, but if you look at other industries, um, let's say emissions of cars or something, right, um, then there's an agency created, they actually put numbers and they I mean do these tests and, and all of that. So um, I think we should look at other industries that have gone through um, additional regulation and um, uh, kind of see how they've uh, progressed. So I think the law is more of about um, uh, just kind of getting the, the thought process going, but it needs to be followed up then by an actual um, uh, sort of agency that would um, uh, do the regulation, uh, the compliance and all of that. And then um, that leads to a more sort of uh, a precise ecosystem uh, around it. So if things head in that direction, I think... Um, uh, there will be much more of a, of a control over um, what it is that we actually want. Okay. So we generally close up these podcasts with, with a couple of questions, and I guess we'll tailor them a little bit to, to what we've been talking about. So firstly, what would be a quick win that some someone, a practitioner in this space, can add to making their productionizing the models more trustworthy? Yeah, so I would definitely recommend um, check out the uh, open source toolkits that I mentioned before, um, AI Fairness 360, AI Explainability 360, and so forth. Um, uh, so they're governed by the Linux Foundation uh, right now, and um, uh, the websites that we have for them uh, have a lot of tutorials and uh, glossaries and reference materials. So um, uh, that can be a quick win. They are written um, in a scikit-learn sort of paradigm, so uh, it should be... Uh, uh, easy for for a lot of folks to to incorporate them into their natural workflows. And what would be one part of putting a model in production that you think toolmakers should pay more attention to with regards to what we've been talking about today? Yeah, so I think the the governance aspect of it. So there are starting to be um, uh, organizations, companies, uh, the toolmakers that are developing governance uh, solutions, but. Um, uh, I think uh, much more can be done there because uh, even if you have all these fancy sort of bias mitigation algorithms or adversarial defenses and things like that, um, uh, drift detection approaches, uh, until you um, actually have a systematic way of applying them uh, throughout a life cycle, um, throughout the MLOps process, um, uh, I think uh, they kind of get lost uh, in the shuffle. So uh, the more we can be holistic about it, um, kind of... Uh, uh, go into uh, the the MLOps mindset that uh, these are the the processes, these are the personas, um, and this is what people need at the, those precise times. Then uh, we'll be able to to better institute some of these uh, trustworthy machine learning concepts. Yeah, so it's not really going to help if it's just an afterthought, like tacked onto the edge of a, a system. Exactly. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation and I definitely would recommend to our guests that they, they check out your book. It's not long, it's very clear. Yeah, definitely a lot to be learned from it. Awesome, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.